Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrett. Welcome to episode 18. Now, so far on the pod, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Wallabies and how they've performed in recent years and also historically before that. We've looked at the player pathways, uh, talked about the fan experience and how the game is presented to us and even drawn comparisons that can be made with, with other codes. But I want to now dig deeper into what actually determines the performance of the Wallabies. What really makes them successful or, or not? And this means digging deeper into the teams that feed through to the Wallabies. Now this last weekend, we've just watched an epic grand final play out in the 2021 Super Rugby AU season. What a game, and what a contest between two, two teams. The Queensland Reds hosted the reigning Australian champions, the Brumbies, and we saw yet again a tight contest that these two teams have played out all season. And this time it was before a 42,000 strong crowd. It's been a long time since we've seen crowd numbers like that in Australia, at a Super Rugby game at least. Even the broadcast audience is reportedly way up than previous years. Unsurprising, given the now unlimited access that rugby has on, on free-to-wear. But in the lead-up to this final, and for a few weeks now, I haven't stopped thinking about how the Reds and the Brumbies seem to be head and shoulders above the rest of the Australian franchises. And not only that, you know, history tells us, especially in the professional era, these two teams have largely been the beacon for Australian rugby's strength. In fact... The last time that both the Reds and the Brumbies were this consistent was in that late 90s, early 2000s period. By comparison, in those early years of Super Rugby, the Waratahs really did struggle. And it was only till 2002 that they started to finish in the top four teams and would be advancing to the finals. It's interesting looking at those first few years of Super Rugby. From 1996 to 2002, and the first seven years of that competition, either the Reds or the Brumbies finished in the top half of the competition of 12 teams every year. And in four out of those seven years, both the Brumbies and the Reds finished in the top half of the competition together. And along with teams like the Crusaders and the Sharks, it was the Reds and the Brumbies who were the consistent performers back in those early years. In fact, the Reds finished the regular season of 1999 as minor premiers and the Brumbies won the title two years later, in 2001. Out of the two Australian teams... This era really did belong to the Brumbies, with the Reds playing a very good, strong supporting role. And as we know, this was the golden era for the Wallabies, the most successful and consistent period the team has ever had in their entire history. And if you look at that 1999 Rugby World Cup winning team of 22 players, it is no surprise that the team is made up of 50% of Queensland Reds, with the Brumbies being key playmakers in the back line in George Gregan and Stephen Larkham. When I spoke earlier this year with Wallaby historian Matthew Alvarez, a man who has dedicated a lot of time to archiving and analysing the Wallabies since their beginning, both individually and collectively, the influence of Queensland was not lost on him, and it made for a pretty stark finding. The one that really stands out to me is how successful we were when Queensland became a force. So you have a look at the 25 years from 1978 to uh, 2002. 
Queensland uh, had gone from being whipping boys to starting to whip. And they gave New South Wales a couple of WAP fours in the middle of the 70s. And it was that tour to New Zealand, they called Nelson Four tries after having uh, swept Wales at home. It was really the beginning of uh, a magical period for Australia. Sure, there were some uh, down years in that 25 years, but the ascendancy of Queensland was critical to the success of the Australian team. And since that time, uh, I think apart from, let's exclude 2020 because it ended up really being just uh, Queensland playing Australian teams. But over that 0203 to 19, Queensland only had four or five winning seasons at super rugby level. And when Queensland weren't going well, Australia didn't go well. And the correlation is sort of ridiculous. So this got me thinking, what is it about these two provinces that have enabled them to attain consistency in recent times? And furthermore, how important is that connection between the Wallabies' performance? What is that correlation? In 1974, the Wallabies in Australian rugby were in the doldrums. Out of the 106 games we'd played since rugby returned after World War II, the Wallabies had only won 27, a win rate of 25%. We'd lost comprehensively to every team bar Fiji in the preceding years. Our Bledisloe Cup losing streak against the All Blacks continued. We'd suffered a defeat to the visiting British Lions in 1966. We got whitewashed by South Africa on both a tour to South Africa and a home series. We were beaten in a home series by a visiting French team. And then in 1973, after a decade or more of destruction, we suffered our first ever defeat by Tonga at the Sydney Cricket Ground. The union was close to being bankrupt. Spectators and participation were in decline. It all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? So the Australian Rugby Union decided that something had to be done. One of the plans that was put into practice was to seek funding from the Rothmans National Sports Foundation, a tobacco company that invested in sports foundations and helped to implement coaching schemes in cricket, soccer and athletics. The ARU managed to secure this funding for Rugby Union and as a result, the National Coaching Committee was born. Now up until this period, Coaching and selection for the Wallabies and even regional representative teams was pretty ad hoc, informal and, in some people's opinions, ripe for nepotism and inconsistency. It was time for Australian rugby to streamline things. The NCC's first coaching director was a Queenslander called Dick Marks, who was a former Wallaby centre who played from 1962 to 1967. Now, it makes sense to me that the state of Queensland must have benefited by having a coaching director who would no doubt attempt to implement many of those new ideas and innovations into that region. So with influential thinkers and innovators like Dick Marks and the legendary coach Bob Templeton driving change in Australian rugby from within Queensland, I've often wondered if that was purely down to these individuals or whether there was a bit of a Queensland mindset about this. One thing is for sure, and that's Queensland had tasted rugby disaster before. Back in 1920, due to the pressures of running an amateur code in the wake of the First World War and a world-facing financial depression and many clubs and schools changing from union to league, 
the Queensland Rugby Union had to declare itself bankrupt. This meant that they couldn't field a representative team, so from 1920 to 1928, there was no Queensland. New South Wales played all the visiting teams, and during this time, they'd have all their games eventually recognised as official Wallaby matches, despite there not being any Queensland players in the makeup. Eventually, Queensland managed to find their way back into operation, and by 1929, they returned to the rugby fold. So in Queensland, the history of financial struggles and peering over the precipice are all too real, even in the 1970s. So part of the strategy that Dick Marks and others employed was to look outward instead of solely inward, to learn from the best. And in the 1970s, the best were Wales, a country that was hugely successful in the Northern Hemisphere and who made up a large contingent of the British Lions squad of 1971. A Welshman, Ray Williams, was the first ever Wales coaching director and was so revered that Australian rugby flew him out to Australia for a month just to have his brain picked. Much of that valuable intellectual property from Williams helped form the first national coaching clinic material that would be used by Australian rugby to help inform coaches, selectors and aid in the development of the next generation of Wallabies. It was also around this time that the Australian Institute of Sport would also start to be critical in the development of rugby. Seeking international experience and assistance was critical, and it's something that World Cup winning Wallaby captain John Eels echoed when I sat down and spoke with him. One of the reasons Australian rugby became so, thro so strong through the 70s and early 80s was because we started to open up our minds to a lot of international influence, and a lot of that was actually people like Bob Templeton taking Queensland over to play New Zealand provinces. It wasn't just Queensland travelling to New Zealand to play games every year. Queensland would also play visiting teams from the British Isles in midweek games. They'd play New South Wales Country, Sydney Rugby Union rep teams, the ACT, Victoria, the Australian United Services team, anyone and everyone that could put together a competitive team. This shift by Queensland to play more games was largely inspired to change the tide in what had been New South Wales domination for most of the 20th century. From 1929 to 1970, the two teams had played 114 times, with New South Wales winning 75% of those games. That's New South Wales winning three out of every four games for over 40 years. So for Queensland, it was a very simple strategy. Play more games. And with every passing year in the 1970s, Queensland's games per season increased, going from five games a year to eight games, to 10, to 12, to 15 games, to even, in the 1980-1981 season, playing 21 games after tours to New Zealand and the UK. An extraordinary number of games, even by today's standards. This simple play-more-game strategy started to pay off in their matches against arch-rival New South Wales, who were typically playing between three to five matches a year. Between 1970 and 1984, out of the matches between New South Wales and Queensland, Queensland won 63% of those games, increasing their dominance especially after 1976. The team was so strong that when the All Blacks toured Australia in 1980, Queensland were the only representative side, other than the Wallabies, to beat the mighty All Blacks 
nine points to three at Ballymore. And this Queensland rise didn't just stop at New South Wales. When the newly formed South Pacific Championship was started in 1986 between six teams from Australia, New Zealand and Fiji, Queensland came second to Canterbury, ahead of the powerhouses of Auckland and Wellington. The competition relaunched again in 1992 after the World Cup the previous year, and Queensland managed to go undefeated and win the competition. And then after South Africa rejoined the rugby world once apartheid had ended, the South Pacific Championship extended to 10 teams, and in the three years that competition lasted, Queensland won two of them. That competition would then eventually morph into the professional super rugby competition in 1996. This is John Eels talking about how much that passion for Queensland meant, especially when it came to playing their arch rivals in New South Wales. I think it's uh, the old rivalries between Queensland and New South Wales were, were so important in the game because players got used to really building for something that was special. So they got used to playing for something that meant so much. And Super Rugby was very much like that as well. Like it was that layer on top of it. It was the international layer on top of that domestic rivalry. So you got used to, to performing under pressure in big games, which was such a great preparation for test matches. Now, the Queensland New South Wales rivalry, I think if you ask the players who play it, the players who watch it, like I still watch it and I still feel the same about it, but it's hard to say what it means to the guys playing these days. And Look, I think it would be arrogant and wrong of me to suggest that it means any less to them than it did to us back then. And people would come from New South Wales to play for Queensland, but they, once they got into the, the Queensland system, they became incredibly impassioned about Queensland. And, and that game sometimes meant, well, certainly meant as much for them as it did for anyone who was born and bred in Queensland, like myself. But I, but I think those rivalries are really important. and. Probably the, the singular rivalry of Queensland New South Wales has been replaced by other rivalries around the place. Um, maybe not to the same intensity because of the, the number of games that are played, but, but I think there are other rivalries developing. And a rivalry it was. Queensland New South Wales, already Australia's two heartland provinces, became the factory line for the Wallabies who became household names and remain familiar to us still. John Eels, Nick Farr-Jones, David Campese, Simon Poitavan, Mark Eller, Roger Gould, Tim Horan, Jason Little, I could go on and on. One person who we've heard from before and who is one of Queensland and Australia's favourite rugby sons is Michael Liner. This is an observation he made about Queensland rugby. Yeah, I always sort of thought, you know, and I went through that system, as you probably asked before, but it was more that I've always sort of thought that it was more identifying talent throughout, say, Queensland, for example. We had regional coaching directors that I think was part of the, the whole Dick Mark sort of setup. But yet Queensland, player-wise and competition-wise, was still smaller than New South Wales, yet was still more dominant over this period. For comparison, Sydney's Premier Club competition, the Shoot Shield, had 10 teams, including relegation whereas the Queensland equivalent, Brisbane's Queensland Premier Rugby, only had seven teams until 1991, when it then extended to eight teams. Even today, the Shoot Shield has 13 teams, and Queensland Premier Rugby has nine. You know, so you've got some kid playing in Townsville at some school somewhere or some club, 
and he gets identified by the northern regional coaching director and that you know then there's a sort of a information and that kid then gets tracked and looked after and you know um, and and you know, invited down to come and to Brisbane for a coaching session or something like that so being part of that I, that sort of system seemed to work very very well um, because I'd identified people and then once they were identified it's a relative this to your point it's a relatively small playing base but we rugby was very good at identifying talent and then looking after it I want to leave Queensland for now and talk about the Brumbies. The Australian Capital Territory Brumbies were founded in 1996 as the third professional Australian franchise after Rugby Union went professional and Rupert Murdoch invested $550 million US million in a professional club rugby competition between four teams from South Africa, five teams from New Zealand and three teams from Australia. With New South Wales and Queensland already established powerhouses of Australian rugby and where much of the talent resided, the team from the nation's capital had to build a professional club from scratch. This is Rod McQueen, World Cup winning Wallaby coach and the inaugural Brumbies coach, talking in an earlier episode about that new era of professionalism upon which the Brumbies were born into. Now we went from training two to three days a week to seven days, thinking about it, having several sessions in that and, and understanding what it was all about, professional rugby. So it was a dramatic change and, and you know, when you have a change like that, it doesn't just happen overnight. You've actually got to work on it and plan for it and, and see what's going to happen. You, know, you can't do things normally the, probably the way we did it before and we had to sort of plan for that and understand that. And I think that was, um, whilst, it was, whilst it was tough, it was also exciting because everything was new going from amateur rugby to professional rugby overnight was, uh, was pretty amazing. This immediate start of professionalism meant that not only did the Brumbies have to create a completely professional club with recruitment processes, coaching structures, full staff and an all-year round schedule, they had to be competitive immediately against other provincial teams that had a much longer playing history. On the 5th of March 1996, the Brumbies ran out for their first ever Super Rugby match against Transvaal at Bruce Stadium in Canberra. It was a team that you might expect from a new franchise, a mixed bag of players that featured World Cup winning Wallaby prop Ewan McKenzie, a Tongan international Alicia Vunipola, who as it happens is the uncle of Marco and Billy who currently play for England. It also had the celebrated Argentine prop Patricio Noriega, who had represented Argentina at the 1991-1995 World Cups and would go on to play for the Wallabies back when the rules allowed players to switch countries. In fact, three Randwick players from Sydney's Shoot Shield would be in that team, including a former Wallaby fly half, David Knox, and a young but powerful forward by the name of Owen Finnegan. There was also a young Queenslander called David Giffen, who'd been unable to get a regular spot in the powerful Queensland Reds starting lineup. All in all, a ragtag team of journeymen, rejects and unknowns. At least that's how the rugby press build them. But on closer inspection, seven players out of that starting 15 were local lads who had represented the ACT for at least two years, if not more. Some of them are names you might recognise. Marco Caputo, Ippolito Fenikitao, Craig Sweeney, Joe Roth, 
George Gregan, and a young, dynamic utility back at outside centre called Stephen Larkham. This ACT rep team that superseded the Brumbies was a team known as the ACT Kookaburras, who had been quietly making themselves known to those in the Australian rugby community since their formation. The team had created history in the past, winning against Queensland in 1972, and then a year later, beating an international team for the first time when they defeated Tonga. Five years later, in 1978, the ACT would beat the Five Nations champions Wales by a point. So this team represented not just the ACT, but did, and still does, represent the Southern New South Wales Rugby Union, which includes major towns like Griffith, Young, Yass, Taralga, Goulburn and Wagga Wagga. Good, strong country communities where regional rugby plays an important part of the local identity. And the ACT Premier Competition has always featured largely six to seven clubs, a small but strong competition from which the Kookaburras team were chosen. And in 1994, the Kookaburras caused a monumental upset by beating the powerhouse New South Wales Waratahs in Sydney by 44 points to 28. It was a watershed moment as their competitiveness led to the team being invited to partake as an outsider club in the Sydney Shoot Shield the following year. And so in 1995, the Kookaburras would travel from Canberra every week to play against Sydney's best clubs, where they would be enormously competitive, making the grand final in their first season, just getting edged out by Gordon. And out of those seven players who debuted for the Brumbies in Super Rugby in 1996, six of them were part of that famous win in 1994 against New South Wales. One of them was none other than fullback Rod Kafer. I managed to sit down and talk with Rod about being part of that historic team. We started by understanding a bit more about how he got into rugby and how he found himself playing the game in Canberra. My story is in part one of the reasons why I remain particularly passionate about kids playing rugby. Um, I, I was first into, I, I played soccer as a young kid and then a little bit of AFL. At the age of 12, um, a guy by the name of Brad Gervin, um, who was a former Wallaby, ended up playing one test for Australia in 1988 against England. Um, came to my primary school in Canberra. He was the development officer for North's Rugby Club in Canberra. I was at Melbourne Primary School. Came to the, came to the school and introduced me to tackling people. And I played, obviously, soccer and AFL, where you didn't do a great deal of tackling, clearly. And uh, showed me, taught me how to tackle. Many people will say for the rest of my career, you should have done a better job because I wasn't a particularly good defender. That being said, Gerv, um, introduced me to this game called Rugby Union. I was then going to Canberra Grammar School after that and I played rugby, very much a, a rugby school at the time. And I started playing rugby there. The, and, and it was only the introduction from him that um, probably gave me that sense of what rugby was, a, rugby was about. The, the end of that story, that was the start of my rugby career. The end of that story for me was in my very first game for the ACT Kookaburras at the time, the, the most the, the precursor to the Brumbies, the team that um, uh, was the premier team in, in senior rugby in Canberra, my very first game for the ACT 
was Brad Gervin's last game for the ACT. He was captain of that side and I was the rookie coming into the side to play. And it was almost like this, the full circle of what, um, of what rugby can do. It was, a, it was his um, ability to go out into the community, find um, young rugby people, um, potential rugby people like me, who ultimately then I go and make some contribution to Australian rugby, I become a wallaby and all of those things. But only because at the time the game was investing in people to go out to schools and to create, um, you know, the next Wallaby. And Brad Gervin did that for me. Rod is one of the few top professional rugby players to have straddled the amateur and professional eras. I was interested in knowing more about how this shift in the rugby landscape played out in the ACT. The period of time that I was went through Canberra I was very lucky. We had a um, Again, a series of very good coaches that existed in Canberra at the time, many who'd go on to be coaches in, in other places and other areas and do very good jobs, particularly at some of the school teams. We had a very strong school competition between what at the time I think was the five or six teams and what was the ASC competition in Canberra. But it was a very you know, strong competition. Out of that, that team, I played in the... Um, um, ACT schoolboys who won the national championships in 1988. So we had um, on on par and with our peers as good a national um, junior team as you could imagine. Um, we then, um, and funny enough, it was only two years ago that the ACT won for the second time the national championships. So it took nearly 30 years. But the the nature of um, the environment in Canberra was very much about uh, high-performance rugby. It was in the early days of the Australian Institute of Sport, which then just naturally you had this um, osmotic process of that information leaching out into other sports, particularly those sports that were close. Rugby, certainly in Canberra, benefited from that. And we had a, um, a progression of good players who then developed and um, uh, we're in teams, in those early days we were in teams that for the first time we beat Ireland in a midweek game when they were on a long tour, we beat Argentina, we beat uh, what was Western Samoa at the time. Um, so a number of international touring teams who came to Canberra, we were able to beat them. And, and that was in many ways the precursor to the Brumbies. In fact, I played against the All Blacks in 1992 for the, for the ACT and there was about, you know, 3,000 people at the game. And then the next year, the ACT played against the Springboks, so sort of about 1,500 people maybe at the game. And then that was 93. You sort of fast forward from there four years and we were selling out um, what was, you know, Bruce Stadium at the time with 27,500 people um, for a semi-final in Super Rugby. Four years after, we bring either the All Blacks and... and and the spring box into Canberra and you can only get a handful of people to come along and watch. So the, the game changed rapidly in those early years from early 90s to the late 90s. It was such a seismic change in the game. I was interested in this notion that the proximity to the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra might have had an influence on the ACT rugby system. Interestingly, the efforts made by Dick Marks and others with the National Coaching Committee included getting rugby to be a member of the AIS in 1980. 
What this amounted to in practice was scholarships were provided to the most talented schoolboys. Tuition and camps were conducted by top coaches and, when available, Wallabies themselves. And significantly, coaches from other AIS sports would be there to cross-fertilise by providing rugby players with additional intellectual property around things like fitness, nutrition, strength training and injury prevention. It's hard to think that this didn't have an effect on teams like the ACT Kookaburras and the wider ACT rugby community, given they occupied the same small city. It's also interesting to consider the advantages of a team that occupies the same small space. Have an entire squad train in the same places, attend the same gym, eat at the same restaurants, go to the same cafe, day after day. It must have bred a very tight-knit and familiar group. Even Rod McQueen, the coach of that first Brumbies outfit, spoke about how being isolated in Canberra had its advantages. For the first time, we had everyone coming from all around Australia and staying in the one, one place. So we basically had a base camp. That was the first time that happened. We had to come up with a name. We had to come up with a jumper. Had to come up with a way of playing. Uh, we had to bring people from all those different places all around Australia and unite them to a, to a common cause. And so it was, you know, it was, it was daunting, but it was great. And everyone had a great time over that period of time. And I think also because it was a little bit out of the mainstream and out of the way, we were allowed to do a lot ourselves without everyone knowing about it. So we actually put a lot of time and effort in it and changed a lot of things. I remember when we first came up with the pods and the lineouts, for instance, some of those sort of things came out with groups of players coming up with ideas and sat sitting around talking about it. And we, you know, we definitely had a you know, philosophy and a different way of playing over that period of time. And it was great to be able to sort of have a bit of a secret knowing that we'd, we'd done a lot of work and we were going to play the game differently. Um, and that made it all, all the more enjoyable. The Brumbies playing group even had many members of the squad living in a shared apartment complex, which was affectionately known as Melrose Place, after the popular 1990s Aaron Spelling soap drama about the life and times of a group of young adults living in West Hollywood. Were you one of those residents of the infamous Melrose Place? Oh, look, I lived around there because I was a, I grew up in Canberra, so um, we had a... Uh, I, I lived with a couple of other Brumbies players, Justin Harrison, for a long time. He and I lived together um, for a period of time, and um, we lived together in a couple of different spots. So uh, the Melrose pra- Place, it was... Uh, you know, they were interesting times. So great, good fun, good community. It was like you are on tour for... Six months of the year, you're having a great time with good blokes. And having a great time they were. The Brumbies had a slow start to Super Rugby in their first year, but by their second season, 1997, they made the grand final, falling short against the Auckland Blues in Eden Park. Their rapid rise made them the new force in Australian rugby, with their coach Rod McQueen becoming hot property and installed as the new Wallaby coach by the end of 1997. The man who replaced him and was the Brumbies' second ever coach, was a wily former Randwick coach who had returned to Australia after a short stint in Japan, Mr Eddie Jones. So just what was so different about the Brumbies? The history of the Brumbies coming about, in that first team, as you may know, I think there was a squad of 33 players, 17 of whom were from the Kookaburras. So you had this large number of players from the same environment, which, which plays to the point... We then brought in a number of players who actually, many who came from Randwick, I think there might have been out of the, 
the next 16 players, there may well have been six or seven players who came from the one club side. You had Owen Finnegan, Adam Magra, David Knox, um, uh, James Holbeck, um, you know, and other guys who, I'm sorry if I've forgotten you, but, you know, a lot of other blokes. And then you had a couple of, you know, a, a number of guys who played together in, in Queensland and also Queensland club rugby together as well. But, um, so, so we brought together um, groups who knew each other definitely, but equally knew people to that, the core of which was the existing ACT Kookaburra side, which was largely the, made the, the nucleus of the squad. However, many of those players didn't start um, because the, many of the other incoming players were simply better or had better opportunities or, or started, but they added to this um, foundation that already existed. And I think that was the thing more so that, that drove the success. And the new players coming in were often um, players who were coming, who, who were well known and were coming from quite often similar clubs. Um, you know, again, Randwick was very much a, a real focus for the Brumbies and a lot of Randwick influence there through Ewan McKenzie primarily. Um, but strong connections there. Of course, then Eddie Jones comes in 1998 and strengthens that tie in with Randwick as well. Um, and we just continued to build on the combination of those players coming in and the local players who were being developed through the, the Canberra competition, many of whom were playing club rugby, obviously, in Canberra. Then the next level was into the Sydney competition, either via the Kookaburras or the Vikings, I think, from 97, 98, it became the Vikings. Um, and 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 there were there certainly were players who were, you know, in, in that same environment, absolutely. We've heard Rod mention the Vikings there. Now, we already know that the Kookaburras had been playing in Sydney club rugby prior to Super Rugby being started. The Vikings took on the Kookaburras' name and entity in 1999 and continued the Kookaburras' position of taking the best of ACT rugby and playing in the Sydney-New South Wales competition. But now, the Vikings also had leftover Brumbies squad members who didn't get selected playing for them. So the Vikings were, in effect the Brumbies reserve grade side. This Vikings side remained competitive and made the semi-final of the New South Wales competition in 2000 before being kicked out. Now, in order to keep the team going, a deal was made for them to play in the Queensland Premier Rugby competition. Such was the necessity to keep this development team running. They would fly up to Brisbane week in and week out to play in the QPR Hospitals Cup from 2001 to 2003. And the Vikings were premiers three times in a row, which mustn't have sat well with Queensland Rugby Union as they were disallowed from competing in 2004. This decision was then reversed a year later, with the Vikings being allowed to play back in the New South Wales competition in 2005. At this point in the story, I myself actually do recall this as I was playing club rugby in Sydney at the time. I can still remember when the Canberra Vikings came up to Sydney to play because their halfback that day was the Brumbies and occasional Wallaby halfback, Matt Henjack, who had just left the Wallaby squad in disgrace after throwing the contents of his drink over some patrons in a nightclub in Cape Town. Full time in 2004 and the Super 12 final, the ACT Brumbies are the champs, 47-38 in front of a record crowd here at Canberra Stadium. 
They led 33-0 at one stage, 33-14 at half-time. The Crusaders have scored four tries to two in the second half. But it is going to be a big night of celebration in the nation's capital. Fairy tales come true. Compared to the Waratahs and Reds, the Brumbies were unique. They were the only club that had a two-team system. A capacity to have their reserves and development players continue getting week-to-week match experience with members of the same outfit. In comparison, the leftovers of the Waratahs and Reds would splinter off and play for their various clubs in Sydney and Brisbane. It was something that Australian Super Rugby teams all desperately needed to keep the standard of the new prospective players coming through, especially as this was exactly the pathway system that already existed in New Zealand and South Africa, in which Super Rugby franchises, like the Crusaders, would have an NPC team like Canterbury underneath them. Australian rugby saw the merit in this, and with some leftover money from the earnings of the 2003 Rugby World Cup, they created the Australian Rugby Championship to have eight teams from Australia playing in a round-robin competition. It was that much-needed level between the amateur-grade competitions and the fully professional Super Rugby competition. It was started in 2007 and lasted just 10 weeks. The reason? It was too costly an exercise. So with the ARC scrapped, and neither New South Wales or Queensland allowing them entry to play, the Canberra Vikings disbanded. The Australian Rugby Union saying that the ARC was costly is eerily prophetic. Because from 2008 onwards, having won in 2004 and being competitive in the following few seasons, the Brumbies started to drop down the Super Rugby rankings for the first time in their history. With legends like George Gregan, Stephen Larkham and Owen Finnegan finally retiring, the Brumbies no longer had their development team, the Vikings, that would produce the players to fill these big boots. In this 2008 period onwards, the Brumbies' results would waver from their worst ever third-last position in 2011 to yo-yoing performances where they would make the top four one year and then get lost in the middle of the table. The team that had been one of Australia's most consistent clubs since professionalism was anything but. It's in stark contrast to their main adversary at the turn of the century, the Crusaders, who would continue being a super rugby powerhouse and still hold the record for the most premierships in the competition history. The cancellation of the ARC in 2007 also hurt Queensland. It damaged their potential to have two out of those eight teams become development feeders to that next generation of Reds. And it came at a bad time, as the previous year, the Queensland Reds had been dealt a massive blow. The history-making fourth Australian franchise, the Western Force, was launched in 2006 with much excitement across the Nullarbor and was helping Australian rugby get closer to achieving a much larger national footprint. However, this new club came directly at a cost to the Reds. Over 12 contracted Reds and academy players moved to Perth to play for the force. Most notable amongst them was Wallaby lock Nathan Sharp, as well as promising future Wallabies Digby Ione, Richard Brown, Drew Mitchell, and a young promising schoolboy called David Pocock. Unsurprisingly, Queensland's performance around this time suffered for the first time in 30 years. The Reds started to finish at the bottom of the Super Rugby table for most of the 2000s. They made a notable resurgence in 2011 and 2012, where, of course, they won their first Super Rugby title. 
but then that consistency of previous eras vanished, and they gradually slipped back down the rankings again. You can well understand why last week's match meant so much to the rugby community of Queensland. If you didn't know, now you do. Queensland are the comeback kings. Your 2021 Harvey Norman Super Rugby AU Champions is a George Queensland Reds. So what does this examination of the Queensland Reds and the ACT Brumbies tell us? There are a few things. Firstly, Big cities and larger pools of players doesn't necessarily determine success. Queensland as a state has always had less registered players than New South Wales, yet innovations around selecting talent and developing them are easier to put into effect when you have a smaller group of people to work with. The Brumbies, by comparison, even have less players in terms of a catchment area. And yes, they recruit from other states, but they still need to have a development pathway and support system to keep that team performing at a higher level. All that is easy to manage and monitor in a smaller environment. Perhaps this is something that still hinders New South Wales, as big as their club and school competitions are. Secondly, games, games and more games. You can't argue with the simple logic of the more you play, the better you get. Queensland have shown that it was a strategy they employed before most other clubs in the world in the 1970s, and it paid dividends to helping make them the international force they were for close to three decades. Similarly, the Brumbies, in their early form as the Kookaburras, travelled interstate just to keep the team playing together and to continue their development. It's fair to say with a great deal of confidence that this Kookaburra spine that formed the Brumbies squad and made them competitive early into Super Rugby benefited immensely from two seasons of playing together before 1996. And it's that pattern that brings us to where we are in 2021, with the Reds and Brumbies vying for Australian rugby domination over the last two seasons. Seven years after it was disbanded, the ARC was revived in 2014. It was called the National Rugby Competition, or the NRC, and featured nine teams from across Australia. For the Brumbies, it meant that the Canberra Vikings were back in business. And for the Reds, they had two feeder teams in Brisbane City and Queensland Country. If you go back to 2017, when the NRC final was played out between the Canberra Vikings and Queensland Country, some familiar names pop up. For the Vikings, we have Falau Fahanga, Darcy Swain, Rob Valentini, Tom Cusack, Ryan Lonergan, Andrew Murhead, Len Ikatow, and Tom Banks. For Queensland Country, there's Alex Murphy, Taniela Tupo, Angus Blythe, Angus Scott Young, Hamish Stewart, Filippo Dogunu, and Tate McDermott. And the coach of this team? None other than the current Queensland Reds head coach, Brad Thorne. In short, just about half of the players in the Super Rugby AU final last week, including one of the coaches, were part of a Queensland and ACT development strategy that goes back at least four years, if not more whereby development teams were the foundation upon which consistency became the outcome. The NRC was stopped at the end of 2019, and the reason stated, much like the ARC, was that it was too costly. Well, we have some pretty solid evidence to suggest just how costly it would be for our Super Rugby teams 
if a replacement competition is not installed. And if you listen to the Queensland Reds' current general manager, former Wallaby Sam accordingly, they don't intend on just throwing their hands up in the air about it. He recently stated that in the absence of an NRC, Queensland were considering going back to touring to make up for the lost games. It's sure worked for them in the past. The Brumbies and Reds are clearly doing something different. Their systems are slowly being rebuilt, and these two provinces that were once upon a time factory lines for world-class wallabies are slowly creeping back to where they once were in the rugby ecosystem. The various tales and myths of the golden goose revolve around the concept that someone has gifted something magnificent that produces wealth, much to their surprise, and in most cases, without their full understanding. Whether the success of these teams occurred by design or chance is very much up for debate and further inquiry. But one thing is for sure, that for a short period of time, the Queensland Reds and the ACT Brumbies were the golden geese that allowed Australian rugby and the Wallabies to prosper for a consistent period of time. That is, until decisions were made and circumstances conspired to inadvertently kill them off. I want to let Rod Kafer finish off with this important point about looking back at history. The concept around what drives success, there, there is there's no question that um, there's an argument that you can find through history um, successful factors, whether whether though those things that were successful for you previously are going to be successful in the future is the great conundrum of how do you determine what that is. Um, and, and whilst we'll quite rightly say that, you know, the Brumbies have been, uh, you know, were successful, people say the Brumbies are, you know, Australia's most successful team, six, six finals, um, you know, two titles. The reality is the last title was 2004, which is 16 years ago. Um, we are looking back into a new generation um, that has never seen the Brumbies be successful. They've played some good footy, made a couple of finals, you know, since that, maybe one, but largely haven't had any success. And success is only defined for sporting terms at winning things. Um, th that's success. And if you don't finish first, as Ricky Bobber would say, you're last. And that's, and that's very true. If you're not first, you're last. And, and that's what it's like in professional sport. So whilst, yes, the Brummies were successful through a period of time, and I played in three of those finals and still consider it to be a failure that we only won one, um, you know, that, that, that was a long period of time ago. We need to find that that model, by definition, whilst we think it's good, actually hasn't worked for 15 years. If what we are seeing now in 2021 is the result of a restructured remodelling and calculated effort to rebuild two franchises that could in turn restore the excellence of the Wallabies, then maybe we are in for a very promising and exciting few years ahead. Time and a trans-Tasman competition will tell. And as for New South Wales, well, that might have to be for another episode. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durham, and sponsored by whoever wants to reach out and pay me to have their name up in lights. 
Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby. Follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.